Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English literature and film studies at McEwen University, and this podcast is where I share my research and ramblings about books, films, and games set in impossible and improbable worlds. This episode is part of a series called Office Hours, devoted to the sort of meandering, reflective, and fun conversations I have with students who drop by my office to say hello. But this week, I'm imagining a conversation with not a student, but a colleague who asks me about course design. When I started out teaching, I just was like a, a you know babe lost in the woods. And when I was doing my PhD work. I was at the University of Alberta, which is a research institution, and I was working in a department as a teaching assistant where there was a lot of competition and some decent amount of backbiting between colleagues. I don't even know if you'd want to use that word there, um, but it was like they were like hiding their research from each other. There wasn't a lot of sharing going on. I don't remember there being any moments of collegiality between the those faculty members. And then when I moved on to get my uh, position at McEwen, I remember having one of my colleagues who was uh, senior to me uh, come by and say, hey, uh, you know, I've heard that you taught Dracula before. Do you have any insights for teaching uh, a course with Dracula in it? And it sort of blew me away that one of my colleagues was asking for my input. But I really appreciated it because it was closer to the way that I want to work with colleagues. I want to share ideas. I want to talk things through with other people. I want to bounce ideas off my colleagues. And I want to help colleagues when they ask for it or just when they need it. I know when I started out, I felt like, okay, I don't really know how to put a course together. But I was uncertain of whether or not that was a good thing to admit. Like, you know, I just got the job. Do I go and let my boss know that I'm not 100% sure how to put a course together? I had a decent sense, you know, based upon courses that I had taken. Um, But here's something that many of you might find shocking. Uh, University professors are given no formal education on how to teach. We're just given all sorts of tons of formal education with the content that we should teach. It's actually really similar to the experience that I had going to Bible school and then seminary and uh, then entering church work and finding out that my education had not prepared me for most of the practical things that the job required of me. I wasn't taught how to really preach a sermon in my undergraduate work. I, I, got, I took a course in seminary on that because I was like, I need a course on how to do this. I, I knew how to talk in front of people, but you know, there's something to be said for that, that, that moment of having really decent teaching from someone who has been there and done that to, you know, make sure that you're not just doing it in this really raw and an unrefined way. Um, and, you know, we were never taught how to do a funeral or a wedding or all sorts of stuff, a baptism. I'd never done a baptism until the day I did a baptism. And I'll tell you, if ever there was a thing you ought to have practice in, especially growing up uh, Anabaptist, like rebaptizing, so this isn't like baby baptism, I'm not holding an infant and putting a little bit of water on them. I'm actually taking, in many cases, someone who is either a fully grown adult or someone who is close to to it and dunking them in water without losing them. I actually did on one occasion um, have a, I, I 
kind of bonked the person's head on the side of the baptismal tank. And I can tell you from my own experience that my pastor kind of lost me when I got baptized uh, as a teenager because I was quite tall and I kind of went zoop when I went under. Um, so it's the sort of thing that you, you know, you could use some practice in. And uh, going on to become an academic, I was really surprised along the way. I, I had been teaching and preaching and speaking in front of people from my time as a pastor. So I had a really good sense of how to uh, speak. But putting a course together is a little bit different in that there are some other um, things on the table, what we call pedagogy, which is the study of education and how we learn. And I've learned a number of things over the last 13 years that I've been teaching, and I want to pass those along today. So I'm imagining, you know, like if a colleague was to come to me and say, hey, how do you approach course design? And I'm going to use a course that I will likely be teaching in a few years uh, to do it. Uh, I teach a course at McEwen on uh, readings and speculative fiction, and I've taught it a few times before, and I wasn't super happy with the way that it turned out. I know my students really appreciated it. They liked it. I'm sure that some might even say, you know, there's nothing, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I think that there is always that reaching for better and best, right? And uh, so um, redesigning my spec fit course this time around, uh, I've been reaching for some other goals. But Every time I teach a course, and so uh, the the early versions of SpecFic, um, I always want to try for some form of cohesion. I want the course to have a thematic center. Uh, even if I'm teaching something as potentially broad and disparate as world literature, for example, I want to find a thread that I can run through everything that I'm teaching so that um, the course feels like it's going somewhere and so that the students aren't completely lost in just sort of a go ahead and write your paper on the Iliad if you want or you can write it over here on the Arabian Nights or you can write it on whatever you want but there isn't really a focus to it that gives someone a toehold in terms of of topical uh, focus. So for a world literature course, I might choose the epic because that would work for the first half of a world literature course. Um, for SpecFic, the first time that I taught it, I chose uh, artificial life. And you should know with speculative fiction, if you're not sure what speculative fiction is, you might be like, okay, is it science fiction? Or is it like, what is it that we're talking about here? Speculative fiction is a blanket term, an umbrella term that encompasses um, the fantastic elements of three genres, science fiction, fantasy, and horror that isn't just serial killers. There has to be some element of the fantastic or the unbelievable or the, the supernatural or the supranatural or the far future. Something that, that isn't just mundane. I mean, you can have horror that is about a serial killer who isn't um, what Thomas Sipos calls an uber slasher. Like They don't have to be uh, Jason Voorhees to be, uh, you know, to be horrifying. Um, so... But a mix of those things. I think very simply you could say speculative fiction is all three branches, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. You can draw a really great Venn diagram with it. And I wanted to choose something that would work with all three of those because in addition to cohesion, I want decent, uh, comprehensive treatment of the subject matter. So I wanted to work all three branches into the course. Um, 
And I did a terrible job that time around of pulling horror in. I had a, a smattering of horror is what I would say. Um, and quite a bit of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, but artificial life felt like a way that I could like draw in robots and I could draw in golems. And, you know, the one ring is a form of artificial life. And, the, you know, zombies are ultimately a form of artificial life. So I really felt like there was, there was broad coverage in that regard. Um, broad coverage of, of the content from a thematic standpoint or from a content standpoint. So, you know, I want the course to be cohesive. I want it to be focused thematically. I want it to be comprehensive. I want it to treat, you know, the, the full depth and breadth of the subject matter insofar as one can in a semester. So all three branches, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And then I want it to have uh, survey coverage. So I, I like to give historical context if I can. I just taught a course on uh, horror that some of you may have listened to. And, uh, you know, I've, I started it in the 1920s, horror films, 1920s, all the way up to uh, the 2010s. Um, and 100 years of horror and giving that that historical perspective of how the genre evolves. And I, I think there's a lot to be learned in doing that. But that's a really bananas challenge that I've been trying to unlock now for a few years. And artificial life just wasn't doing it for me. And recently, um, I, I took another crack at it and I went with this focus, little green men and fire breathing dragons. And I just want to say, if you're listening to this and you're a prof at a university and you have an opportunity to teach a course on science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and you want to use this course outline, by all means, please do. You do not need to contact me. Just steal it. Just run with it. Little green men and fire breathing dragons. I kind of like the rhythm of that. And uh, it would start out. Uh, so this is how we go. We, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm like, okay, will this adjust? Like, can I, can I, can I include all three branches with this? And can I run the concept of survey? So the course would begin with what um, John uh, John Clute calls taproot texts, which are the things that precede what we call fantasy or science fiction or horror proper. Like some people will say, oh, well, the Iliad is an example of fantasy. And I'm like, no, it's really not. And it's, it's an example of Greek epic or Beowulf is fantasy. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's Anglo-Saxon epic poetry. Uh, you, you know, uh, Farah Mendelssohn and Edward James in their short history of fantasy talk about how you really can't have fantasy until the world stops believing in the supernatural in the way that it did ostensibly pre-enlightenment. It's difficult to know just how much people really believed in gods or fairies or, or those sorts of things from those periods. But um, there's this idea that you can't really have fantasy uh, the way that we think of it today until you have the Enlightenment and arguably horror, uh, the same thing. Do we have texts that are precursors to that? Yes. And that's what Clute's talking about when he talks about these taproot texts. And so with the Little Green Men and Fire Breathing Dragons, I think the sort of uh, taproot text there is definitely Beowulf. Because you get an invader with Grendel and his mother and you get 
the fire-breathing dragon and the final monster that Beowulf fights in the poem. And it wouldn't be that I would assign that, but just sort of talk about it. And the same thing with H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, which I would not really call so much a taproot text, but it's sitting right at the liminal point between what we call the scientific romances of the 19th century and the science fiction proper of the 20th. Really, the term science fiction didn't gain currency until the 1920s. And so it's 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 a bit of a misnomer or an anachronism to refer to H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds as science fiction, but I don't I don't get too bent out of shape about it, but it's a way for, you know, to have that conversation. So that's that's where the course would begin, was sort of with Beowulf and with Wells' War of the Worlds, which includes not only little green men, but because those little green men, even though they're not green, the Martians in H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds have a heat ray, and it acts a lot like a dragon. And so it kicks off the conversation about these three distinctive genres that we've identified largely for marketing and publishing purposes, but also for those of us as a reader who say, well, I like this sort of thing, but not that, right? You know, there's readers who are like, I love science fiction, but I'm not really in a fantasy. They, they like their pointy-eared people to be Vulcans, not elves. Uh, and then we move on to the pulp era, which is the real emergence of, of these genres in many ways, although we don't really have uh, horror as a genre so much as we have the weird. Um, but I, I, I like looking at, I, I call the, the week Pulp and Pen Pals, and it's where we look at H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, who were pen pals, and they wrote Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction being the um, magazines, these cheap magazines that were printed in the 20s and the 30s on pulp paper and they churned them out like crazy and it was really trashy tawdry uh prose but some of those writers sort of rose above the lowest common denominator of pulp fiction and howard and lovecraft are certainly among those greats that emerged from pulp fiction and i would want to look at howard's short story tower of the elephant which is a conan the barbarian story so it's fantasy so you're like oh okay so this one has the dragon right but no it turns out that it's the one with the alien uh tower of the elephant includes uh an alien uh being in it and uh and then lovecraft also has an alien we don't get a dragon from lovecraft although i suppose i could have sort of gone in a let's just pretend that cthulhu's kind of like a dragon um direction but i didn't i wanted to go with my favorite short story by lovecraft which is the color out of space i think it's super creepy and it anticipates a, a novella that I, I'm thinking about using later in the course. Okay, so now we're at the we're at the 1930s. Let's move a little bit further up um, and looking at Frederick Brown's 1944 short story, science fiction short story, Arena, uh, which gets utilized in a later um, in, when Star Trek comes out. There's the episode of Star Trek called by the same name, Arena, where Kirk gets beamed down to a planet and he has to fight this hissing lizard creature. And the reason I would choose uh, Frederick Brown's Arena is because then we'd get to talk about Star Trek. We'd also get to see how aliens evolve because uh, the alien in Brown's story is utterly inhuman and then there's a little bit more anthropomorphization in the Star Trek episode and then if we jump ahead we can see uh, how this story gets redone in Star Trek The Next Generation. I think arguably an evolution of this in the Next Generation episode Darmok where uh, the captain of the Enterprise ends up on a planet with an alien and they're trapped together, but they have to work together. And I think that's it shows the evolution of the concept of evo uh, of alien as outsider. And then I might include somebody like Ray Bradbury and his great story, Mars is Heaven, 
wherein the aliens are ostensibly the astronauts who have traveled to Mars, maybe? It's difficult to say, but it's a, it's an, it's a really cool short story. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, even though it's really, really old. It's got a wonderful surprise in it. These uh, astronauts from Earth show up on Mars, and they find what appears to be a fairly normal American town, very white picket fence. It's great. But Bradbury has this other short story called The Dragon, and in it, I mean, I can just, you know, totally spoil this one. Two knights are on a mission to slay a dragon, and they're describing the dragon in ways that we normally think of dragons, right? They're, they're, they're massive, and they breathe fire, and they're terrifying. Um, but they say it has only one eye, and then it turns out at the end of the short story, it's a steam train. So that's a fun one, because it's like, okay, was it even really a dragon in the first place? And where do you, where do you put these? Where do you put Bradbury? You know, uh, Frederick Brown is very clearly doing science fiction. Robert E. Howard is doing what when he does Tower of the Elephant? I mean, we've got a space traveler in that. Does that make that science fiction immediately? It's, or you know, is it still, is it some crossover fantasy and science fiction, science fantasy? Uh, Lovecraft's Colorado Space is a horror. Is it science fiction? Um, the messy space of the Venn diagram, you might say. And then next in line, because I, I firmly believe that you should never teach a course on speculative fiction and leave Tolkien out. I don't care if you just use a chapter of Tolkien. I don't care if you, uh, you know, only include half of the book. Uh, I don't think you should ever assign more than one volume of Tolkien in a course that is about speculative fiction in general. Um, and I know from experience that, that trying to get students to read even just one volume of Lord of the Rings in a week is a sort of special hazing. And that's something else that I'd say about course design is that I try very hard to ensure that the reading list is manageable. Uh, when I started out, I just went with the way that people had taught me, which was novel a week, right? Like read Middlemarch this week, read Emma this week, read, you know, whatever it was, read all the Canterbury Tales, now read Paradise Lost and do it in a week. And that's intense. So my rule is that I try to keep readings roughly around eight hours of spoken word. So I go on audible.com and I look up the stuff that I want to teach and I see like, is it going to be less than eight hours? And if it's more than eight hours, I have to really talk myself into it. And I think Tolkien is the reason that I came to this conclusion because The Fellowship of the Ring, when you read it out loud, is 19 hours, uh, according to the Audible audiobook. And The Hobbit is somewhere between 10 hours and 11 hours, depending on whether or not you get Andy Serkis or Rob Inglis to read it. But even, you know, The Hobbit, which is the slimmer volume, right, ostensible children's book, uh, is longer than my rule. So I, I go, but you got to have Tolkien. you got to have Tolkien. So I say, okay, that's okay. We're going to put that in the course. So Tolkien, for obvious reasons, if your course is Little Green Men and Fire Breathing Dragon, well, then of course you're going to include The Hobbit because of smog. Now, I'm not totally thrilled with this because I'd much rather be using uh, the sort of prose that Tolkien generates for Fellowship of the Ring. Um, but you know, you, you, I think it's important to always think about like, what is, what's the student's experience? If they don't even get the book finished, then what difference does it make if the prose is spectacular? 
moving on from Tolkien and continuing to move forward. This whole time I'd be talking about like the progression of science fiction and fantasy, how in Britain they were really big into novels and in America they were really big into short stories. So you get Tolkien writing The Hobbit and, you know, Fellowship of the Ring and whatnot in the UK, while across the pond you have people writing short fiction and then those short fictions getting um, collected into novels like Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern. The first novel, Dragonflight, includes a number of shorter works that McCaffrey initially published in Analog Magazine. And McCaffrey's the first woman in the course. Uh, boom, out of the blue, here's McCaffrey. And I use her here because she's the first woman to win the Nebula and Hugo Awards for fiction. And that's fascinating to me because, like, I think of McCaffrey as a giant. I think of McCaffrey as this person who really paved the way for other women to enter the arena. There are other women who did as well, and I've got Le Guin in the course, so if you're sitting there going, Ursula K. Le Guin, I'm like, okay, I'm getting to it, just hang on. But this brings me back to Farah Mendelssohn and Edward James's short history of fantasy, because uh, one of the other things I think is really important in course, um, course design is that you choose works, like you choose primary sources. If you're going to, you know, you, the books that you choose for your students to read should have relevant secondary sources, that is articles and books about them, so that when you assign a research paper, they can go and find secondary literature on it. Um, now, there's not a lot of secondary literature on Anne McCaffrey, but um, among the, the very little that there is, uh, we've got Mendelssohn and James saying some rather snide things about uh, the Pern books, that they're just their magic pony books. And I'm probably going to say more about this in an upcoming episode, but I always think of that like that's the grist for the mill. That's the they say, I say moment where we're provoked as a reader and we can respond. And I love giving my students those sorts of opportunities to say, okay, well, here we have the experts because let's face it, right now, Farah Mendelssohn is one of the only major academics doing extensive exploratory work in the area of literary fantasy. And so if you're going to rub up against somebody, it's probably going to be Mendelssohn. And, uh, and that's a, in, in its own way, it's a sort of compliment that you pay an academic to say that your argument is rigorous enough for me to try and wrestle with. Um, but the magic pony concept, uh, I think is flawed for a number of reasons. And I'll talk about it in an upcoming episode, but that's one of those places where I'd be like, okay, we've got a, we've got a voice saying this about McCaffrey or this about Tolkien. Uh, you have no, shortage of secondary literature on Tolkien. It's the other works in the course that would be more difficult, which is why I don't so much um, favor using an awful lot of precise articles like, oh, I found an article on Frederick Brown's arena. Well, if you did, then it's a rarity, let me tell you. Um, but I think that using, say, a, a broader book like Farah Mendelssohn's Rhetorics of Fantasy or Istvan Cicciarone's The Seven Beauties of Science Fiction is a better approach to take in a course like this, to say like, okay, um, take one chapter from uh, Cicciarone's Seven Beauties and apply it to one of the works of science fiction, or potentially even take that concept of science fiction, whatever it might be, um, the fictive novum, for example, that Chichiri Rone talks about, which is the new thing, whatever the new technology is in the science fiction story, and apply it to 
all of this? Is there such a thing as a novum in a fantasy narrative? Can there be novums, nove, in, uh, in, in fantasy or in horror? Speaking of horror, some of you might be saying, hey, where's the rest of the horror? And I'm thinking possibly about putting Invasion of the Body Snatchers in somewhere here. But I'm not sure because, again, I've got that rule that says that I have to keep the reading list manageable. And I have some other potential works here that I don't want to lose out on, like Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, wonderfully whimsical short story about dragons in the world of... Uh, the uh, of Earthsea from the her very famous children's book, uh, The Wizard of Earthsea, uh, called The Rule of Names. It's just absolutely fantastic. And then I have a host of potential choices from Ursula K. Le Guin involving aliens, and I haven't totally decided which one I would use for that. Um, but I would also really want to use James Tiptree Jr., uh, aka Alice Bradley Sheldon. Um, her, uh, it's almost a novella, really. Um, the women men don't see, which is sort of about aliens, but it's really about the alienation of women in cis white patriarchal society. Uh, it's an absolutely fantastic bit of writing. Um, and then at that point, we finally would get around to some bonafide horror with Stephen King. Uh, I didn't include any King the last time, and it really stuck in my craw. And I kept thinking, okay, what does King have that would fit within this idea of uh, artificial life? And obviously, you know, he's got some vampire stories, so, you know, the, the, the Salem's Lot. But those books are massive and that's the trouble with putting King in the course. It's the same problem putting Tolkien in a course. It's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick it right? Let's, let's choose it. It's, you know, how long is it? Oh, it's 44 hours. So like by my eight hour, <laughs> by my eight hour rule, that means that we would, we would do it for half the course. So I started looking for short stories and with short stories, King, uh, has this wonderful creepy piece that he did very early on in his career called I am the doorway. It's an astronaut coming back from outer space and has picked up some, you know, alien, Contagion is the only way that I want to say it. I hate I hate spoiling any story. I don't care how old it is. I don't want to spoil a story if it's got a really, really cool ending. And then I would also include uh, King's early novella, The Mist, um, which many of you may know from the film version. Uh, I love the novella. I hate the film. I love the novella, and it's sort of an alien invasion story in that it's not aliens from another world, as in another planet, but an alien creature's from another plane of existence, from some other, you know, they've come through a door, right? I am the doorway. Um, and we get a sort of pterodactyl type creature at one point, which is dragon-esque. So I feel like it, it covers those bases. And then uh, I would go to Octavia Butler. Um, and here I'm, I'm engaged in, in the same thing that I was when I was, you know, throwing McCaffrey into the course. Um, because one of the things that drives me nuts about Farah Mendelssohn and Edward James's treatment of McCaffrey is that they, they sort of go like, oh, magic pony stories, but completely ignoring the contribution that McCaffrey made to diversity, gender diversity in the field of science fiction and fantasy. 
and diversity is also really important to me. So this is why course design drives me slightly crazy is because I'm trying to do all of these things. But I think that the best course does attempt all of these things. So I, and I don't just want gender diversity. I want racial diversity as well. So I've got Octavia Butler in the course. And I mean, Octavia Butler has some incredible novels about aliens, but again, I just don't have the time. And besides which, my favorite Butler story, hands down, is the short story Blood Child, which involves this symbiotic relationship between, you know, a straight up xenomorph style bug alien race and uh, humans who are in this almost slave position, this subaltern position. And then I move back to fantasy via Terry Pratchett. And some people might say, really, Terry Pratchett? Why not Douglas Adams? Um, I think Terry Pratchett is the superior of the two. I know I'm probably going to get some hate mail for that, but I'm just going to say it. Besides which, um, with Pratchett, I, I get the dragon thing uh, in a sort of like crossing over from another world uh, with the novel Guards, Guards. Or I could use the sections from The Color of Magic, which was Terry Pratchett's first book. And the reason I wouldn't want to use Color of Magic is because, I mean, it's his first Discworld novel. I shouldn't have said it's his first book, but it's his first Discworld novel, and he's just getting warmed up. He's nowhere near uh, at the, the height of his powers, whereas Guards, Guards is the promise of greatness. Uh, it's actually greatness itself. Um, but in The Color of Magic, Terry Pratchett has this whole vignette where he lampoons the Dragon Riders of Pern. And so it would be kind of fun to have that in there. And in that same episode, he's lampooning Conan. So it's it's hard for me to to not go and use the color of magic. But I want to include Pratchett because I want to talk about the satirists. I want to talk about the people who take this genre that has developed because there comes a point with every genre where the things that used to be really cool and new become cliche. And at that point, somebody comes along and says, let's make fun of this and have some some fun with it. Let's have some laughs. Next up on the roster would be Naomi Novik's His Majesty's Dragon. And this one's on the chopping block because I'm like, ah, Naomi Novik. So it's still uh, that diversity of gender. My problem is, is that the book is a little on the long side and I just don't know if the course needs it. At the same time, His Majesty's Dragon is so very clearly um, tied to the pedigree of McCaffrey's Dragon Riders. And it does different things. It's almost like it's evolving what McCaffrey was doing. By this point, we're very nearly done the course, and I've got Nettie Okorafor's uh, Cloud Dragon Skies, which is a far-flung Earth after it's been abandoned, and there's some humans down on the ground, and there's humans living up in you know these space stations, and it's it's got some class issues at work in it, but it's also got a sense of... Um, Eco-fiction, I think, would be a good way of putting it. And then another one of Okorafor's short stories called Sinners, Saints, Dragons, and Haints in the City Beneath the Still Waters. I just love the way that the rhythm plays out in the very title of that uh, of that short story. Uh, it takes place in New Orleans and uh, involves, um, you know, some, some form of water monster. Uh, I would love to throw in Kaya Shante Wilson's Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps at the very end of this course uh, because it sort of combines the concept of alien and there's a kind of dragon-esque creature at the very end but i think that at that point i'm just stretching the limits of the course and i'm really not sure that i have the room at that point but if i do then i'm also considering caitlin kiernan's agents of dreamland which in many ways feels like a uh, sequel 
or a revisiting of H.P. Lovecraft's Color Out of Space. But it's a novella, so is Wilson's uh, novel. And the more, or novel, I said, Wilson's novel is a novella. Um, Kaya Shante Wilson's Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps is a novella. And increasingly, that's what I'm trying to do, is just include novellas in my courses if I can find really good ones, sort of making a shift away from the novel as the dominant form that we should always study uh, to using the novella for that manageability of student reading. The astute listener is going to note that there isn't a ton of straight-up horror, and that's why I want to put Kiernan into the course, because it's, it's, it's more horror-esque. It's why I'm questioning whether or not I'm going to put Naomi Novik's His, Majesty Drag- His Majesty's Dragon in there or try to make more room. But I'm also acutely aware of how often horror finds its way into these other forms. But again, it's why I was crawling backwards and saying maybe I should be putting um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers into the course. But I feel like this course achieves all of those goals, that comprehensive treatment of the content of the three branches of speculative fiction, survey coverage of the history of whatever it is that I'm teaching, in this particular case, speculative fiction, which is roughly a little older than 100 years old. Um, I want gender diversity. I want racial diversity. I want diversity in terms of the writers in the course. I don't just want old dead white guys. And I can tell you from experience that, you know, a lot of science fiction fantasy courses tend in that direction. It's like Tolkien, 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 and let me cram in just a little bit of Ursula K. Le Guin as a form of tokenism. And I should say, I don't ever think that we should seek to achieve diversity at the expense of quality. But in my experience, that's never been a problem. And I would go so far as to say in a course like this, if I got to the end and I simply could not find my way around to racial diversity because I was using dragons. And that was a there was sort of a point where I was like, maybe I shouldn't be doing this because it looked to me like black writers simply don't do dragons in their works. I just wasn't seeing a lot of dragons in my black fantasists and then was reading Okorafor's How Long Tell Black Future Month. And I came across Cloud Dragon Skies and Sinners, Saints, Dragons, and Haints in the City Beneath the Still Waters. And at that point, I was like, these are great stories. These go in. But there too, I mean, I have to, I always have to stop and just say, okay, but is, are there, is there going to be secondary literature that my students can use? And is, is that secondary literature appropriate for the level of education that I'm giving them at that point? And that's the one last thing that I would say about the way that I approach course design for English courses is that I am always teaching writing. I don't ever think there's a point at which we step back and say, well, we've taught you enough. Now you should know how to write perfectly. You should all be putting out perfectly crafted research papers. It's a ridiculous assumption. We should always be teaching our students how to research and how to write. And if we can weave that into the nature of the course, not just like it's like some sort of abstract idea of how you go into the library, but to say, let's see if we can find an article about this particular thing. And you already know the answer. You know that the answer is yes, and you're hoping they're going to find that one particular one, and you guide them in that direction. Then once you find it, you talk about it, and you summarize that content, and you get them, you know, swimming around in that content until it's it's part of their vernacular. There are so many other ways that this course could be approached, and 
every now and again, I have some crazy brainstorm and a new idea emerges for this speculative fiction course based upon a sort of dot to dot that my brain is constantly doing between the three branches of speculative fiction, between fantasy, science fiction, and horror, which as you know, is what this podcast is all about. And this one was way longer today, but that's okay. It's, it's nice to have a good ramble. Uh, if you've enjoyed the ramble, Please subscribe, leave a comment, share it with a friend. I'm on Instagram, both as Doc Pershon, P-E-R-S-C-H-O-N, and as Triple Bladed Sword. You can follow my Facebook page, Triple Bladed Sword, teaching fantasy, science fiction, and horror. And finally, if you have something you'd like me to talk about in a future office hour, please let me know. Uh, get in touch with me somehow. Leave a suggestion or a comment, uh, you know, on the on the podcast page or over at the Instagram or on Facebook, wherever you can find me. And I'll do my best to get to it. We're running out of time for these office visits, though. Uh, August will be the last of them. And then once September hits, I'm going to be using the podcast once again as a delivery device for my fall course on first year composition, which you might be like, oh man, that's just gonna be so boring and that's not gonna have anything to do with speculative fiction, but it will because I, I use Godzilla and Hiroshima as the topics for it. Anyhow, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for downloading the podcast. I'm Mike Prashant. And this is Triple Bladed Sword.